Good morning, church. It is a joy to worship with you this morning. I welcome you. I add my greetings to those you've heard. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's continue to worship the Lord together through studying his word. If you have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone or uh, a bulletin in front of you, we're going to look at Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. And as you turn there, I just want to say my deep desire for you and for all of us as a First Presbyterian Church family, is to allow the Spirit of God to help us take Jesus out of the box that we normally keep him in, where he's nice and safe and tame and every, all of our Christianity is real convenient. Uh, I long today that we are vulnerable and open to having the faith that God wants to give you so that you can see Jesus for who he reveals himself to be. Isn't it powerful to hear the testimony like we did earlier at the beginning of our service uh, about how God grabs hearts? It was the woman in the testimony who uh, was defined by her shame, defined by her sin, and she says in her words that she took Jesus out of the box and it changed her life. Not only now is she whole and healthy and forgiven, uh, but she's leading other women in that. I was with a man this week uh, who had kind of the same parallel. He, he is uh, uh, one of the most brilliant men that I've spent time with. Uh, he is from a country that's very hostile towards Christianity. He was here studying uh, PhD work at Texas A&M University uh, in climate science. He graduated, top of his class, was teaching somewhere, being recruited by NASA when he was ambushed by the love of Jesus. He gave his life to Christ burdened with a passion for evangelism and equipping the church, he felt called to try to go back to his own home country uh, and help people there. In and out of that country for months and then years until the government caught on uh, and locked him out of the country. Uh, He left his career, was barred from his family, uh, and was threatened that if he came back, he would spend years and years in prison. Uh, And to prove their point, they took one of his colleagues who they brought into confinement, uh, interrogated him, uh, harassed him, uh, abused him, and got him to you know, confess he was a Christian. Uh, he was a leader in the church, and they gave him laws in that country that he broke, and he's in prison for a minimum of nine years. This man that I was talking to is extremely joyful, full of life, full of hope, not defined by his circumstances, understanding the eternal reality, and excited to give his life away for the Lord. In these moments of of when we see men and women who have taken Jesus out of their box of familiarity and they are truly living an abundant life, these are invitations for us, aren't they? And I want to challenge you that as we look at this passage today, God wants to grab your heart in the same way. Beyond complacent Christianity to an abundant life in receiving him by faith in everything that he's revealed himself to be. Uh, More and more folks want to have a private faith and we want to have our truth. And look, friends, this ends up being no truth at all. The grace of God invites us to uh, encounter God for who he reveals himself to be. So join me in reading Mark chapter 6, verse 1 to 6, and then we will follow with a call and response and then pray together. All right. Jesus went away from there, and he came to his hometown. His disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? 
What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that which he laid hands on, a few sick people, and healed them. And Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Please join me in this call and response. All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your grace that reveals yourself to us fully. We ask that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts, that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear, hearts to receive. Lord, we don't want to just be inspired. We want to be transformed. And we look to you for all of that which our hearts long for. Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us as we study your word. In your name we pray. Amen. This is a situation. Jesus went away from there. And he went back to his hometown. His disciples followed him. Where was he? Jesus had been in Capernaum, Capernaum, the, the, the region of Galilee where he had been displaying the power and the authority of his word. You'll remember different scenes that we have studied over the past few weeks. It was in a boat where the word of Jesus stilled the storm. You remember that? It was in uh, across the sea where the word of Jesus dispelled demons from the demoniac and he was left in his right mind and had peace. It was in Capernaum, the city, uh, where the word of Jesus actually brought healing to the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years. It was the word of Jesus that brought resurrection to Jairus' daughter. And from Capernaum, about 20 to 25 miles away, he went to his hometown in Nazareth. And the last time we encountered him in chapter 5, he was just with Jairus, Jairus' wife, and in their home with their daughter and two of his disciples. And the word of his power brought resurrection to this girl. And now he comes to his hometown, Nazareth. This is the backwater community, probably had about 500 people that lived there. Now, Jesus grew up there. Everybody knew him. They were familiar with him. And as he began to teach from Scripture in the synagogue, they began to react. Now, it's not insignificant that verse 2 says that on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue. Because the synagogue in the book of Mark is a place of conflict for Jesus. We've already seen it in chapter 3 and all through Mark. Whenever Jesus goes in the synagogue, you can anticipate there is a fight a-brewing. And it might surprise you. He's in his hometown, literally translated his fatherland. How can all of these people who are familiar with him want to find him? Well, it won't be the first time. You'll remember about a year before in Jesus' ministry, he went back to Nazareth. And in Luke chapter 4, it's recorded where he began to teach after he unrolled the scroll of Isaiah 61. And they were amazed at him. His family, his friends, all that were familiar with him, they they loved receiving his word until he started getting pretty descriptive. And their intensity and hatred for what he was saying grew so great, so great, that they did something to him I hope you never do to me from this pulpit. 
They surrounded Jesus. They took him outside. They wanted to stone him and throw him off of a cliff. Wow, that is dislike for the word. That was about a year before. And what does Jesus do here? He goes back to his hometown, back to the synagogue, and teaches again. At least we see this relentless grace that God has to teach his word to his people. Will we get stuck in our familiarity or allow God's word to be our formative authority? Now, Look at the end of verse 2. You see how they received it at the synagogue. They say, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? They were astounded. The word for amazed there, if we were to try to get as a literal translation as possible, it, we could easily say they were blown away. They couldn't believe what they were hearing. They in amazement, started asking, where did he get this teaching from? Where did he get this? They started wondering where the wisdom came from. Where did the power come from for his mighty works? And, and their initial receiving, just like Luke 4, was very warm, very open, very welcoming. But just like the parable of the seeds in the sower in Mark chapter 4, they are like the third soil that receives the word with excitement and joy, but there's competing things that choke out the message. And as soon as we read about their amazement, we're quickly encountering their anger. Look at verse three. Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are these not his sisters here with us? And it says, they took offense in him. Jesus is degraded in his hometown. He, he, he is uh, described as a carpenter. Now, carpenters are a very dignifying uh, profession. And in fact, it was a skilled laborer in that day who generally worked it with wood, making doors or tables or door frames or yokes for animals. They worked with metal to take hinges, gate posts. They worked with stones to make walls, to make wells. They brought forth culture from God's creation. And, and Jesus dignifies humanity in, 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 in participating in a vocation. But they degrade him by saying, isn't this Mary's son? I mean, can a carpenter who brings forth culture really bring forth truth from God's word? He's not a real teacher. In fact, they don't even mention Jesus's dad, earthly dad, Joseph. It's as if they go through his family, mentioning brothers and sisters and mama and not the dad to highlight, we don't really know where this man came from. I mean, is it really Mary, Joseph's legitimate son? Bringing into question his credentials to be up there. Now, listen, don't hear what I'm not saying. On the one hand, we need to celebrate Jesus' humanity. We have to have his humanity. We need to be grateful that he came in dignified work and vocation. I mean, the true image bearer, just like Adam and Eve who worked before the fall, called to create culture and ruling, subduing, and cultivating God's creation for his glory. That's beautiful. Jesus had family. He had friends. He had community. He was fully human, and we need to appreciate that. If Jesus isn't fully human, 
then he can't be the perfect sacrifice for our sins. However, we can't let his full humanity blind us to the reality that God wants us to see. On the other hand, the humanity of Christ is 100% with his divinity, which was 100%. I want to read to you a a few passages from the New Testament. The first is from Hebrews chapter 1, where Jesus is called this. He says, it says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. Whoa. That is awesome. Look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 to 17. This is the deity of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Woo! That's awesome. I got a friend uh, who unfortunately went to be with the Lord uh, in May of 2020. His name was Tim Russell. He was a colleague of mine, a pastor in Memphis, and he died from COVID. And he had a trademark phrase that all of us who knew him and served with him miss tremendously. Uh, Tim would be in a worship service or be helping up front, even in conversation with people or hearing a testimony like we heard earlier this morning. He would say this. You'd hear, yes, that's the Jesus I know. He would hear something in a song that he'd like, and he'd go, that's the Jesus I know. He would hear uh, people out in the hallway, didn't be talking to him, and you would, didn't even know he was around, but you'd hear from a distance, that's the Jesus I know. And I can't wait till when I get to heaven and I see Tim Russell up there and he points to Jesus and he goes, yes, that's the Jesus I know. <laughs> One day. But I wonder about these familiar family and friends that are in Nazareth, this small town. They're hearing Jesus teach, and they are going, is that the Jesus I know? I mean, is that the Jesus I grew up with? This one that claims to be not only the Word, but the Word made flesh? And Jesus makes a divine claim in this passage. He says it in front of everybody, verse 4. He says, Jesus said to them, A prophet is without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. Jesus stands in the synagogue where they teach the law of Moses every day and every week. And on the Sabbath, he claims to be the prophet. Which prophet? The prophet that Deuteronomy 17 said would come after Moses. The prophet that Hebrews 3 says is one greater than Moses. Jesus says, I'm a prophet. I'm the prophet. And the people there say, I don't know if that's the Jesus I know. In the church, in America today, too often we have made the Jesus into our own image. Comfortable Jesus, a Jesus that we know. And we've come into this very conflicting cultural moment where people who are so individualistic, so desirous to serve ourselves that we've taken a piece of Jesus here, a piece of his teaching there, a piece of this cultural truth, a piece of this, and we've blended them all together, and we've come up with something that we celebrate more and more as a culture, and that is my truth. Uh, James K.A. Smith, who's a Christian philosopher, about 10 years ago, he coined this term, a sociological term that is now the most dominant uh, 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 worldview 
for Generation Z and X and Y and all those other younger folks, I can never remember all the, all the ABCs, you know, the ABCs of sociology. I'm just not there. I'm sorry. I have my limits. But this is, I do know this, that he, they, they subscribe primarily to what's called moralistic, therapeutic deism. In this tortilla soup blending of spirituality that people call my truth, where they take different ingredients, they look at Jesus like, well, he was a good teacher. He said good things. So I'm going to follow the good stuff he says. Therapeutic, you know, Jesus was a good guy. I want to feel good. We use Jesus when we don't feel good about life. We want to feel good about ourselves, right? Uh, deism, uh, where people say, well, sure, I believe Jesus was, he was probably God, right? But if he was God and he created, um, he's probably removed and, and isn't really interested in my life at all. He's like a, a clockmaker, to use the classic deist example, who makes the clock, steps away, and just let it run. Now, many grandparents in here, you have grandkids that have uh, wandered from the faith or left the faith completely. Many college students or university students or high school students, uh, you see your friends that are completely disengaged, uh, and they, they, they're not necessarily opposed to Jesus. But if you begin to say that Jesus is teaching and his life is the full truth of which you subscribe, you're going to find yourself marginalized. Because nobody in our culture anymore wants to take the whole counsel of God and all the teaching of Jesus as our primary formative authority. We would much rather feel good, do good, and just kind of go through life believing that God doesn't want a personal relationship with us. Well, if the incarnation of Jesus teaches us anything. His perfect life, his death on our behalf, and his resurrection from the grave it teaches us at least this. Jesus did not come to make bad people good. Jesus came to make dead people alive. Jesus is a God of resurrection and new birth. And all of the longings that we have in our heart that we're seeking to satisfy by this self-selecting cafeteria spiritual mentality where we're trying to find our truth is actually leading to tragedy all over the place. No family is exempt. The hope that we have is the grace that Jesus keeps coming, keeps coming to our place, keeps coming and meet us, and to reveal himself as he came to reveal God to you and to me. And his grace, his spirit, can make effectual his truth in our hearts and our lives. This is the Jesus that God's word shows. Jesus is the word of God made flesh. Jesus is the prophet, the word that displays the beauty of the truth of God. Jesus is the word that spoke all creation into existence. Jesus is the word that gives hope to the hopeless. He's the one that is the light that gives true hope to people who sit in darkness. Jesus is the word that is life. In the places of death, in the situations of death and struggle, he's the one that says, I am the resurrection and life. Jesus is the one who is the word that is the only water for our soul that can satisfy the bread that can nourish us. Jesus alone is that word. And he makes these divine claims not to come to condemn you or this culture, but to invite you to 
feast on who he really is. He wants to restore. He wants to renew. He wants to revive. And what's amazing is that we reject his grace, his revelation again and again and again. Jesus is described in verse 5 of this passage. He says, He could do no mighty works there, except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have the power to do those works. It was that people didn't believe that he was God. They didn't trust him as Lord and Savior and King. They were too familiar with him to allow him and his word to be their formative authority. And in the process, they missed the opportunity to encounter the power of the living God that brings healing and wholeness and forgiveness of sins that reveals and encounters and engages us with the true love of God and gives us a whole new identity. One that's secure in life and in death and richness and and in poverty and sickness and in health. His love gives security. It's Olympic season, and I don't know if uh, you're much of a watcher of the Olympics. I kind of catch some highlights. Uh, And if you watch the Olympics, you might not watch wrestling because it's just kind of awkward to see guys in tights rolling around a mat together. Can we just agree on that at least? Well, maybe you heard of this guy named Kyle Snyder who in 2016 became the youngest gold medalist ever to win a medal in wrestling. All U.S. history. Uh, He was just a a phenomenal wrestler. And he is uh, anticipated to compete for gold in this year's Olympics as well. Between Olympics, there was an international wrestling match uh, where he faced a guy from Russia whose name is so complicated that I'm not even going to try to pronounce it. But he wrestled Kyle in the world championships in 2018. And Kyle was pinned by this guy in 70 seconds. And the reporter came up to him afterwards, and this is a direct quote. And he says to him, Champions are defined not by wins, but by losses. How is this loss going to define you, Kyle? And you know what Kyle did? Kyle looked at the camera, and he answered by speaking into the mic, wins or losses don't define me. I mean, I love wrestling. It's a big part of my life, but I'm not defined by the sport. I'm defined by my faith in Jesus. You hear that? There is this intimate relationship where where God is not some remote being that is disengaged. He wants a relationship with his people. And it's not just about therapy so that we feel good because we live in a fallen world where there is a lot of losses, far greater than just uh, uh, world championship wrestling match losses. But Jesus in those places reveals himself as faithful that we become a new creation where we're not just concerned about being good and doing good. That's important, but that's fruit of being a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old being gone and the new has come. The problem is we identify too much with the people who are in Nazareth. So familiar with Jesus that we have allowed his truth and the revelation of who he is to be marginalized to not only our hearts, but also our homes and our neighborhoods 
and among the nations. We have settled, friends, for just partial truths, parts of Jesus, and we have stopped truly studying his life, truly asking for his forgiveness and allowing his spirit to transform us, asking his spirit to transform us. We must respond to his grace, allowing the ground of his grace to be the place where our faith and total trust in Jesus Christ to be renewed and restored. That's what God wants to do. He does it, I mean, he marvels at people who reject this invitation. He marvels at people who hear about his love, who hear about his grace, who are presented with this, this truth and who say, no, like, uh, this, this is not the Jesus I know. And he wants to truly restore. You know, God's word has something to say about every aspect of our life. Do you believe it? Every relationship you have, all your free time, all of what you do with your finances, all your questions about the future, God wants to meet with you. All of the questions that we have about ethics in our culture, what does it mean for me to date in a way that gives glory to God, to be married in a way that restores the image of God? What does it mean to celebrate God's design for human sexuality? Where do we get an unchanging truth about gender in our world? How can I find solid ground in storms and seasons of life where I have more questions than answers and more fear than faith? And all of these places that we're looking horizontally and taking partial truths, ingredients, and some sort of tortilla soup of moralistic therapeutic deism, Jesus marvels that you will settle for a bowl that is here today and gone tomorrow and reject the feast of the banquet of his love. And his grace invites us to come to come to him, to be restored and renewed and to find all of what we're looking for and longing for through his love and his work. You know, friends, that's why we come to this table. We don't come to the table and worship because, well, I've got 15 minutes left. We've got to fill it with something, right? That's not why we do communion. Jesus gave us the sacrament, a tangible sign of his work historically for you. And it's an invitation for all who believe to come and to feast upon his grace. If you are a Christian and you're a member in good standing with a Bible-believing church, this table is for you to come and feast. If you long to feast on the grace of God, to be restored and renewed by the Spirit of God and the Word of God, this table is for you. If you want to come to Christ and, and have him come out of the box that you've put him in so that you can truly experience the resurrection abundant life that he has designed for you, this table is for you. Because when we come to this table, we know that Jesus Christ is locally present at the right hand of the Father, but he is spiritually present here. And in our sin, we can taste his righteousness. In our brokenness, we can taste his healing. In our death and mortality, we can taste his life and immortality. Because all the promises of God are yes in Jesus Christ. And we come and feast, knowing that we can be secure and accepted in his love. Because Jesus was betrayed, that you might be accepted. Jesus died, that you might live. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, before he was handed over to death, he had supper with his disciples. And after supper, he gave thanks and he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
And in the same way, after supper, Jesus took the cup. And he said, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink this in remembrance of me. And as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you will proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And friends, he will come again. Truth will win. And until then, we can find refuge in him.